Hi, I'm Danny Lee. Please welcome the writer and director of Born to Be Blue, Robert Budrow. So tell me about you and Chet Baker. When did you first make his acquaintance? Uh, the, the very first film I made out of film school was a film called Dream Recording, which was a 1940s jazz film. So I kind of was interested in jazz very early on in my film career. And I think I, I knew of Chet's music and I loved his music, but it wasn't until I really kind of found out about his story and found out this kind of comeback aspect of the story and the fact that he was approached to do a film about his own life. So it's true that he, he was approached by Dino De Laurentiis, Fellini's producer, when he was serving time in Luca to do a film about his own life. And that film never happened. But when I found out that fact, I jumped onto that kernel and I, I knew that that could be a useful tool to try to do something a little bit different with the music biopic, which I was finding a bit kind of boring. But is this the second time? I'm right in thinking this is the second time you've tackled Chet. And there, was, there, was, there was a short at one point as well? That's right. Is that okay. So when I was first starting to develop the idea of doing a Chet Baker movie, I was approached by Bravo Television, a Canadian um, network, to kind of do a little short TV piece about Chet Baker. And I knew I wasn't going to cover his death in the movie because Bruce Weber had covered his kind of life in the 80s in Let's Get Lost. And, um, but I was really fascinated by how he died, and it's one of the big mysteries of his life. But I, I always wanted to focus the movie. And so for this short film, I decided I would just focus on that last night of his life. And that's, that's the, the Chet Baker short film that I did, which was a good introduction for me to, um, to his character. And Stephen McCaddy, who plays Chet Baker in the short film, is the guy who plays the father on the farm in Oklahoma okay. in the movie. But this time you decided to bring it back to a very specific time frame, 66, 67. And I guess what some people will know and some people might not know is, is you've taken an approach to, the, to what actually happened in those years, which you might call a jazz approach. I mean, you're riffing, you're taking... You're, this is not the Wikipedia version of Chet Baker's life, you know. And uh, tell us a little bit about that approach and that desire to kind of move away from the traditional biopic. Yeah. Well, the, the approach kind of comes out of being a little bit frustrated with music biopics. I think after... Films like um, Walk the Line and Ray, which were very successful and well-done studio films, it had almost become a bit of a cliche, and that's why you had that John C. Riley film, Dewey Cox, Walk Hard, or whatever. It, they almost became... Uh, all these all the musicians kind of lived somewhat cliched kind of lives with the drugs and the redemption. And, and so I was trying to find a way to frame the story that was a little bit different than that. And that's why that film within a film aspect at the start of the film and framing it within a few years, which is kind of like a comeback story. I always saw it almost as like a sports movie where it's like the athlete gets injured and then he's got to come back and it's, it's something that's very um, emotional and simple. And then if you use that as a framework, then you can riff off of that. And, and um, because we had the music, you know, the trick is often to try to find a way to kind of create a rhythm and a tone for the film that, that somehow works with the music. And it, it's a tricky thing, but that's and I suppose the other thing I know about Chet Baker is that he was an unreliable narrator of his own life. So, yeah. I mean, it's in terms of actually finding the truth. I mean, that's easier said than done anyway, possibly. Yeah, well, when I did the research and I read all, all, the, um, all the biographies and all the endless kind of court transcripts, because he was in prison a lot and, and a lot of public domain materials, and the Chet Baker losing his teeth, the beating, which is kind of the central turning point of the film, t 
Chet Baker gives three wildly different accounts of that over time. In the late 60s, he was interviewed. He was interviewed in the mid-70s. He was interviewed again in the late 70s. And each account is completely different. And so Chet Baker couldn't even really um, come to terms with what happened to him. And so it, it was something that Ethan and I, it was one of the reasons that Ethan was very excited about the project was this idea of kind of treating it as a reimagining and, and trying to more focus on the spirit of the character and, and jazz rather than trying to pretend that all the facts are exactly like they are. Because most, most biopics do that anyways, but they just sure. they kind of hide it a little bit. Sure, sure, sure. If you were steering away from biopics in that case as kind of touchstones and guides, what were you looking to, you know, as, as tonally and in terms of the structure? And were, were you looking to fiction in that case? Yeah, I think Ethan turned me on to a book by a guy named Jeff Dyer called But Beautiful, which I, hadn't, I wasn't aware of when I first wrote the script, but there's a, an amazing uh, book by an American author named Jeff Dyer, and it's called But Beautiful. And it's about seven or eight short stories of jazz musicians, and he takes real um, events in their lives and he fictionalizes them intentionally. So in the Chet Baker chapter, the beating takes place in a diner, and the guy hits him with a jar of ketchup, and, and clearly it's fictitious. But in, in doing that, it, it, there's something about that book that he kind of captures the spirit of him by not following all the facts. And, and I think movies like, um, you know, I'm not there, the Todd Haynes, Bob Dylan thing. I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. That's a more extreme version, obviously, because there's seven different actors playing Bob Dylan. And, but the idea of kind of using something like that or kind of using a bit of a Charlie Kaufman-esque device, the, the trick is always kind of combining that with something that's still traditionally narrative and finding the balance between the two. Um, that, that's, that's where it was tricky doing that dance, I think. I mean, I want to bring the audience in because I'm pretty certain that people will have quite a lot of questions. But let me just ask you quickly about Ethan because you've, you've already mentioned him quite a few times. Clearly, on one level, it's his film. He kind of, you know, he, he owns the screen. It's a, it's a huge performance. But how collaborative was that performance? I mean, what were the circumstances of bringing him in in the first mm. place? Well, but when, I, when we reached out to Ethan, I had known that about 15 years earlier, he had wanted to do a Chet Baker movie with Richard Linklater. It was a movie that was kind of Chet Baker in his 20s, A Day in the Life of Chet Baker. And him and Linklater were never able to make that movie. But for 15 years, he's been kind of thinking about Chet Baker, wanting to do Chet Baker. And so when I reached out to him and said, I have a Chet Baker project about Chet Baker in his 40s, who's now kind of a broken down junkie who actually plays himself in his 20s, Ethan was so interested and passionate because it was almost like he was playing, able to play himself in the Linklater movie that he couldn't do. And he just, you know, he works so collaboratively because of that relationship with Linklater and because he writes and directs and he does theater. And so when I saw his response, I really invited him in as a partner and, and he really became kind of my, he helped me rework the script and I really, like he just, yeah, it, he just it felt like he was. we kind of made the movie together, in a, in a sense. So that little snatch of biopic that we see earlier in the film, where because obviously that is set a little bit ahead of time. I mean, maybe was that like an echo of the Linklater film that never was? Well, I think, it, I think for Ethan it was. I mean, when I wrote that, that's, that is what I wrote. I never knew that, at the, even knew that at the time. But I think that's one of the great things is, you know, when, you can, when an actor can personalize things and bring part of himself to that. Like, I... I had no idea that he, Ethan would bring that part of it to him. But for me, that was a way to, um, to tip the audience off to this fact that this isn't all um, 
fact, and also has allowed me to explore the kind of black and white iconography of William Claxton photography of the 50s, because when I did my research, I looked at all the photographs of the 50s. I could not find one color photograph of Chet Baker in the 50s. There's maybe one or two, but it's very, very hard to find. So to me, I wanted to find a way to bring in that black and white imagery without it just being a straight black and white flashbacks, because I've always hated those, but sure. yet, to me, in my mind, these aren't just pure black and white flashbacks. It's kind of going back to this movie that was never made. I want to ask you about the look of the film, but I'm aware that I've monopolized the conversation. So um, maybe we'll break off and then come back to that. Um, if you do have a question for Robert, please do raise your hand. A couple went up very quickly. Very interesting. I've known Chet Baker's music for a while, but I never realized, I knew he was white, but I never really thought of him as a white musician in a black community. There are other big jazz players who are white, but not necessarily horn players. And it does come across the problems he had within the, the, the jazz, black jazz community. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, how much that is true, and was that the main reason why he ended up working in Europe as opposed to staying in the States? Um, I, think I think race was, was one, of the th one of the themes that really did attract me to the film. I think this idea of a black, you know, a, a, a really good-looking white musician idolizing black idols, was, it's similar, I think, to Elvis Presley. It, there's, it's a recurring theme in American music of, of the 50s and 60s where you have these white performers who are kind of expropriating African-American music and making it kind of more popular on the radio. And I think Chet Baker, he had mixed, um, he had African-American or mixed race um, wives. And I think, you know, obviously that time in America, there was a lot of racial change. And so that, that to me was a very interesting concept to explore. And it is true that there was a rivalry between the, the you know, almost exclusively white West Coast jazz, which was kind of the easier jazz, and then the East Coast jazz, which is predominantly African-American, which had come out of the, the 40s and 50s as bebop, there was a real rivalry between those two. And I think that forms some of the conflict in the film. And, and I think Miles Davis did resent Chet Baker, partly because everybody knew that Miles you know, ultimately was a superior trumpet player. But Chet Baker was like winning the polls and selling lots of records. And young white girls who didn't really know anything about jazz were cheering for him. And I think it was an interesting kind of conflict. And it made him feel quite guilty, because when he showed up at Birdland, he was the number one jazz player in the world, supposedly, but he knew that he was inferior to, Chet ba uh, to, um, to Miles Davis. And so, you know, in an ideal world, I could have explored the whole Miles-Chet relationship even more. Miles, unfortunately, is just kind of a small piece in the film. And Don Cheadle explored Miles in his own, in his own kind of film, which came out at the, almost the same time, which is its own kind of interesting thing. But, um, but I, I think the whole racial conflict was interesting, and it also was obviously a, an important factor in casting Carmen Ajogo as the female opposite Chet. I was going to ask about that, because obviously it's a composite character that Carmen Ajogo is playing. I mean, as a writer, when did you make that decision to have a composite rather than an actual specific wife of Chet? In my research and in looking at a lot of biopics, I think the female characters can often be quite passive because a lot of these musicians have multiple wives, multiple girlfriends. And to me, if you have a film where you have four or five women coming and going who are passive, it's much harder to kind of explore certain universal themes. And, and it was important for me to kind of use, almost use Chet Baker as a conduit to try to explore themes of addiction and race and music. And so the whole film within a film conceit 
at the start allowed me to, to create this composite character who kind of represented various women who did those things for Chet Baker. I mean, composite characters are done in almost all biopics that, aren't, that, are, that they say are based on true facts, and nobody even knows that. And I think the fun, the fun thing about this film is that we're able to actually tell people it's a composite character and celebrate that as opposed to kind of hide it and pretend that they're not. Um, Ethan and I talked a lot about Raging Bull, and uh, this film is nothing like Raging Bull, but it was, that was our kind of guiding light film because it, Raging Bull very much deals with uh, you know, a boxer who has got a brother-like manager figure and then a female character. And Joe Pesci in Raging Bull, for example, is a composite character. He didn't exist. He was a couple characters combined. And it doesn't even really feel like a biopic. And so, so many films do that. And um, it was our strategy to kind of just be upfront about that. You mentioned that you'd read Jeff Dyer's book. I assume you've read West Coast Jazz as well, the, the book by Jeff Dyer. And anyway, I just wondered why, why it was kept, why you referred to it in the film as West Coast Swing, because it was never swing, it was jazz. And, and Dick Box Company was specific jazz. So was there a, re, a legal reason why you couldn't call it that? I mean, some... Yeah, we, um, yes, there was. <laughs> <laughs> I grew um, up there, so we were going to use Pacific Jazz, and it became a bit of a um, branding label thing. So we changed it to Liberty Records. Okay. Um, but um, you know, interestingly enough, Callum Keith Rennie, a great Canadian actor, plays Dick Bach. And uh -huh. there, there's not that much on Dick Bach. Like I did, tried to do a lot of research, and he was a very interesting figure who transitioned into world music and lived his own life. But um, it's it's one of the frustrating things about doing a movie like this is that. You know, I did all the research and I knew everything. Like, I really wanted to include Jerry Mulligan. I really wanted to include all these and Russ Freeman. There's a whole thing in the 50s. But when you ultimately try to condense it into 90 minutes and do something that's a bit more accessible to non-jazz fans, you have to let go of so much. I mean, if you do an eight-part cable series, I guess you could maybe explore the nuance of all of those things. But it, it's, it's always frustrating for me to have to change Pacific Records to Liberty Records and cut out Jerry Mulligan and... And, um, but it's, and, and even fictionalizing things, but it's something that I kind of did knowing all of those facts for sure. Thank you and congratulations. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. Devastating ending, I was in bits. Uh, and it strikes me that you are raising all the way through a very difficult question that I'm sure everyone is already familiar with, the, the price and the cost of artistic genius and its relationship to addiction and drug addiction. And it strikes me that the genius of Ethan Hawke's beautiful, beautiful nuanced performance is that he makes you care so much about him as a person that you really struggle. I really struggle with the fact that it's very hard not to feel, thank God that he did take the path that he went and thank God for the heroine and thank God for that music because I, for one, find that music a great salvation in my life. So what a selfish thing. Uh, were you deliberately trying to mess with our heads in that way? Were you deliberately trying to raise those very difficult questions and the sort of selfishness of wanting these artists to lead these wrecked lives mm. for the music that they leave behind? I think the last, like the last 15 minutes of the movie, which is kind of the culmination of his choice, we spent a lot of time just trying to set that up. And, and I think being non-judgmental about the drug use was something that was really important to me and became very important to Ethan, because I think so many movies, um, it's so easy to kind of say, uh, obviously drugs are bad, obviously they're destructive, and obviously so many movies follow the pattern where 
you know, they, they get clean. And, and A, that's not true for Chet Baker. A, it's not really true for most artists. And I think in kind of choosing that ending, and um, I, I think there was, uh, there was one point I toyed with kind of this idea of a happy ending, like a Hollywood ending where, you know, he, get, he got the girl and he stayed clean. And then I realized that was so untrue to, to Chet Baker and to just the reality of things that um, I, I didn't go with that. But it was, I also think that, you know, addictive behavior and addiction is, is such a mystery. And I don't think, you know, I, I certainly don't have any answers. And I know Ethan if he was here, and I know he'd like to be here, he's shooting a movie in South Africa. Whenever I, I've done Q and A's with Ethan on this, he's he's much more eloquent than I am. But Ethan, you know, he was he was very close to River Phoenix. He's very close to Philip Seymour Hoffman, who he, who both died because of heroin, and and he really was able to personalize this the mystery of addictive behavior and what that means and what you give up for that. And I think you know the, the, those final scenes in the dressing room where he talks about what where Chet Baker talks about what the drugs mean to him and why he did them. You know, I wrote a lot of that stuff, but Ethan also brought a lot of himself into those scenes, and I think that was, you know, I was so, I'm so thankful that the stars aligned that Ethan was able to come on the project because he was able to bring that kind of understanding, which I don't, I don't really have as much. I don't have as many people in my life, at least, that um, have experienced drugs. And I know Ethan, as, as, as all, you know, he's been acting since he was a teenager, He's got lots and lots of friends and close people to him that, have, that he's lost to drugs, so he was able to bring that. I think I read an interview with Ethan where he was saying from what he knew of Chet Baker, he thought he could have made the music that he made without the heroin, but the, crucially that Chet never believed that himself. And yeah. so it ultimately becomes, it's, it's actually, that's immaterial, you know, yeah. whether he could or couldn't, because he didn't believe it. Well, so much about insecurity, and there's a line that Carmen Ujogo, Jane, gives in the film where she, she reminds Chet, she's like, a lot of your best music was before you ever did drugs, because a lot of Chet's greatest music was in the early 50s with Jerry Mulligan on the West Coast, and that was, he was like a milk-drinking square Oklahoma farm boy, kind of, who found himself in LA, and he was making a lot of his greatest music, and he, he didn't come, he, he disdained drugs, and then things changed, and he did make beautiful music after that, but, you know, it, I don't think his music really got better because of drugs, I think that was a different kind of lifestyle issue. I'm restating in a way what you've just said because the impression I got in the movie was that fact or fiction, woman stayed behind in LA, she was his crutch, he got there, he needed a crutch or felt he needed a crutch. And I thought you sent a very strong message that he would have been just as good without it. And I don't know if you were deliberately sending that message. I think you just said you were, but clarify, please. Just as good without the drugs, you mean? Well... I think the reality of, you know, Chet Baker did have a, um, a triumphant comeback. Um, it took a little bit longer. I compressed the timeline. The, the actual, that big comeback was actually at Carnegie Hall, not Birdland, which is even a, a bigger kind of space. And he did actually very shortly after Carnegie Hall uh, leave to Europe, left America behind because he disdained America, and basically became a heroin addict again for the next 14 years until he died. And so um, I think the reality is, I think he, you know, from, our, from other people's perspective, I think he maybe could have, he could have played that type of music without the drugs, but he, for whatever reason, because of insecurities or whatever, felt like he needed that. And, and it's also, it's interesting because so much of Chet Baker's career was marred by drug abuse, but the kind of one year or at least 
kind of year and a half that the movie focuses on is the one phase where he's most, for the most part, clean. But that's because he had lost his music and he's trying to get it back. Once he got that back and was playing good again, then he didn't, then in a way he was, you know, doing drugs again was almost okay because that was getting in the way of him um, coming back. So it's, it's a real mystery and I, I don't kind of purport to have any answers. It's kind of trying to raise questions. And, and I think by, um, by kind of trying to cut off the movie fairly quickly once we have that performance and not having a denouement, because I think in some ways Bruce Weber and Let's Get Lost covered that. That's kind of the denouement to Chet Baker's chapter. I, you know, the hope is to kind of leave questions about, about the mystery of Chet Baker. And I think one of the reasons people are fascinated by Chet Baker is because his music is mysterious and his he's a very enigmatic character. And you kind of, the hope was to leave them, leave things hanging a little bit so that people could kind of ponder it and come up with some of their own conclusions. That line, I feel like I'm inside the notes when I'm on heroin. I mean, that's, I mean, I think if people have known people who, who've taken drugs and played music, I mean, that seems to encapsulate what they think, at least. Yeah. Is that a line from Chet's life, or is that an invention? No, that, I mean, that's an invention. I, I, I don't remember where the line came from. I, you know, Ethan and I did a lot of rewriting late at night in the hotel room the night before certain, as particularly before that dressing room scene. And I think this idea that that jazz musicians, particularly in that time, really it was it was almost part of the culture, especially especially in the '50s with bebop, that the the need to do that to kind of fully explore yourself in the music was necessary. And I think because Chet idolized those those musicians, and and it just became part of doing that. And so I think he thought that, and I I'm, I think to a certain degree, he was a very in, introspective kind of guy who. He often said he wanted to use drugs to kind of isolate himself from the shit of the world so he could just kind of be in his own space. And, and he was the kind of guy that played for himself in a way. If you watch a lot of his performances, he's just kind of hunched over playing for himself. And um, I think that allowed him to kind of phase out the audience. Not that I don't think he really got stage fright in the traditional sense that some people do, but I think it kind of isolated him from things. Like stage indifference. Yeah, it just got him into a certain world. Hello, um, thanks for the film, it's great. Um, I was wondering how much the music was part of your writing process? Was it you were listening to it? Obviously you had set pieces that you had in there. How did that evolve? Was it an organic process? I think there were certain songs that I knew um, would end up in the movie. Like I knew I, My Funny Valentine, for example, had to be in the movie because it was kind of Chet's signature piece. Uh, I had a few favorites. I always wanted to include Over the Rainbow, partly because I love Chet's version. But I, I really wanted to choose songs that were a few, enough well-known songs that were accessible to non-jazz audiences. And so the, this movie, Dream Recording, which was a short film I did right out of film school, I worked with a guy named David Braid, who's one of Canada's best um, arrangers and pianists. And so I had had a relationship with David. And so as, as, as I was writing the script and developing Born of Blue, I already brought David into the process and was talking to him about songs. Um, and especially because this was a movie that wasn't about perfect set pieces, but was about using songs to show his, his um, kind of progression in the comeback. We were trying to pick songs that were still well known, but that would suit um, the narrative in terms of showing him coming back. So at, like at the pizza parlor, you know, we use Summertime and he kind of plays it badly and he plays a little bit better. And it was really tricky to do a music 
film and actually create this kind of dicey music. Like some of those songs are not very well played. And it was very tricky for David and me to kind of know what the balance is. Because if it sounds too bad, it's just going to People don't want to come to the movies and pay $12 to hear shitty music. Um, but at the same time, you have to kind of show that. And so it, it, it was an interesting challenge to, to do that. And I think um, the final song, I've Never Been In Love Before, was kind of the most challenging because we wanted to narratively set up the idea that he had chosen love and not the drugs and kind of misdirect people and then pull them back. And like we wanted people to think they were getting a happy ending and then try to pull the rug out from under them. And, and that was a song that we originally had a different song in mind. And that was a song that was a very personal, Ethan. So there was a lot of give and take. And we recorded all the jazz music um, about three or four months before we shot the movie. And then we re-recorded certain songs. But it's, it's a great um, advantage to have that music in your pocket because it, it informs the tone of the shooting and informs the tone of the editing. It really helped the rhythm. I know our editor, um, David Freeman, is here somewhere. There's David. Um, it was a great treat to have you know, 35 minutes of music. Um, you know, Chet Baker's music was kind of languid and, and romantic and slow in some ways. And that, that had to, for me, inform the rhythm of, of the edit. And, and, and I know David and I were working on that, using that as a guide. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a one of the fun things about doing music projects, I think. It feels like it's such a potent choice of song at the end as well, because it reminds you, obviously, with rock music, there's a whole series of songs which are love songs to heroin, and it kind of ends up feeling like that, you know, and you end up, it, you, I mean, it does, I mean, I think someone mentioned, you know, the sort of the churn of emotions you have at the end, and I think the choice of music is, is vital to that. I mean, obviously, it's Ethan, it's Ethan singing, and it's also Ethan playing for real. Ethan plays a little bit of the trumpet. He plays a lot of the bad trumpet work. Right, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, about six months, we got Ethan on to the film about six months in advance, and he started taking trumpet lessons immediately. Um, but I think on a second or third trumpet lesson, he, he asked his trumpet teacher, he's like, oh, am I going to be able to play all this? And the trumpet teacher said, yeah, if your director gives you like 20 years of prep. <laughs> um, and so very quickly, it became about him learning how to mimic, learning how to play. He could play all the basic tunes, just not on that level. And so I had a guy named Kevin Turcott, who's one of the best trumpet players in North America, uh, do all the trumpet work, the major trumpet work. Ethan did do some, but he didn't do all the virtuosic stuff. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, one of the things, one of the hallmarks of jazz, I guess, is, is the openness to improvisation. And I mean, improvisation is not always the easiest thing to have on a film set, well, on a relatively tight budget, you're on a schedule. So how did you marry those two things, you know, the shooting schedule on one hand, and also the need to, to actually let the actors become jazz musicians? I was lucky in the sense that Ethan and I had spent a lot of time in pre-production working through the script. And, um, and because he comes from a very collaborative working experience, and I was open to that, he was, he was constantly throwing things at me. So we did a lot of rewriting and improv before the day. On the set, we did some improv, and I encouraged him to kind of improv with others. But most of the stuff was kind of done in advance, sometimes the night before, sometimes the week before. Um, you know, we shot the movie in 25 days, and we had relatively short days because we were shooting in northern Canada when, you know, it got dark at 5 o'clock. We were trying to do L.A. in the 1960s. And it, none of it really made any sense. Um, and uh, so we didn't have a lot of time to play around. But because Ethan and I had been able to spend so much time together in advance of that, 
it, it, and he was so well prepared, it, it made things go kind of quicker. But at the same time, I would try to intentionally throw him off and tell the other actors to throw stuff at him because we had kind of made a pact with each other to kind of try to keep it a bit organic, at least because it's a jazz movie. And so we, we kind of tried to mess with each other a bit and throw each other off. I did say I wanted to come back to the look of the film, and I, I think this is the moment for that. Because what's so, still so authentic about it, I guess, is that it doesn't feel, the look of the film doesn't feel razor sharp. It hasn't got that kind of madman edge to it where everything mm. is pristine. It actually feels a little bit shabbier, mm. and the fashions are almost slightly kind of out, of out of whack. I mean, it's actually it's the clothes that people would have worn maybe in the 60s, because actually, you know, outside of the major metropolitan hubs, that's yeah. what happens. Not everybody yeah. dresses up to the moment. I'm yeah. guessing that must have been a deliberate choice. Yeah, it was absolutely deliberate. We, I really wanted to shoot on film because it was, um, because, you know, it was a 50s and 60s movie, and I think there's an emotional quality to having that filmic look. Um, you know, the last lab had closed down in Toronto, and we would have had to send the film to New York, and so, in the end, shooting on film was kind of a lost cause. It's almost become a completely lost cause in Canada. I know in America, maybe here, there's a few labs left. But um, so you know, we shot on the Arri Alexa, and we worked hard to use softer lenses and some filters, and then we added um, some Fincher, some various grains, some Fincher grains, and we, you know, because there's also the film within a film and the black and white, it was more important to try to capture a bit of that filmic quality. Um, and my director of photography, Steve Cousins, is a very much kind of of the school of natural lighting. And so he, he's a pretty minimal lighter, so we tried to harness as much soft natural light as we could. Um, but for me, I think when you're doing a movie like that, you want to you wanna feel, almost feel that analog film quality, but still do it in a digital realm. And so that was a challenge for me. It was something I was certainly worried about. Um, but I, I think for the most part, we overcame it. And we, you know, we shot 25 days in northern Canada, but then we did have two, two and a half days of insert shooting in Malibu and Santa okay. Monica. Those beaches don't exist in, in Toronto, <laughs> obviously. And so those, those two or three days in LA um, were really key, because I knew I could pepper those throughout the film, because so much of Chet Baker and the music is California and the open skies, mm -hmm. and, and, um, and it was really important that we were able to kind of capture that. Okay, were there any more questions? Yes. Thank you so much. It's fantastic and very moving. And the way you um, portray, portrayed the relationship between... I'm very interested in the female parts as well because I'm female, I suppose. But I thought he was fantastic, Ethan. But I wanted to ask you, um, Carmen, um, the woman, she's a fantastic actress. I don't know how you found her. But um, well, so what happened? Because she was having a baby, she's left behind. And I mean, was it true? <laughs> I'm quite interested. I'm also quite interested in the budget. You keep mentioning as being low, uh, what kind of budget you had. And um, I think that's my questions. Okay. So, um, you know, we cast Ethan, and then Ethan and I together, we looked at a lot of different women, and Carmen just really blew us away. She was, um, she's been in a lot of great movies. She's, I think, for whatever reason, slightly flown under the radar for people. She's English, isn't she? She's, she's a British original. actress. Um, she was in Selma. She was Coretta Scott King in Selma, and she's done a lot of, lot of great stuff. And so... She really blew us away, and she was great because she was able to really kind of give a certain strength and maturity to that role, which helped Ethan play off of Ethan. I think, you know, Ethan and I were very playful and constantly, constantly changing lines and things, which was tricky because she has a very strong British accent, and she, 
she was constantly given all these new lines that she had to work on her accent for. So in some ways, she had a, almost as I think she had as, as challenging a role as, as Ethan did. Um, yeah, I mean, the female character is a composite character, but in a lot of ways, I think it's meant to encapsulate a lot of women in Chet's life and other artists' lives. And unfortunately, there is a certain element of these women wanting to mother these um, kind of geniuses who often can't really almost fend for themselves in life. And I think, you know, one of the challenges, one of the things when Ethan first came onto the project, one of the first things he said is he really wanted to build up that female character. None of his notes were really about his character. It was about building her up. She was actually a, much, a bit of a smaller role in the earlier drafts. And we tried to strengthen her as much as we can because the story isn't ultimately about her. But I think the final, she makes a final choice, which is actually one of the strongest choices in the film. She is the one that actually leaves. Um, and that was important that we, I think, kind of created a certain strength. Chet Baker had three or four wives and many girlfriends who did kind of follow him around and kind of mothered him. Um, but he also had some strong women that, that kind of helped him on this comeback. Um, what was your other question? Oh, the budget. The budget, the budget was under $10 million. Um, you know, it was something we shot in 25 days, which is relatively, I guess, kind of normal for an independent film, but, but, but fairly tight on a film like this to do in 25 days. I mean, it's a slightly silly question, I know, but would you have wanted that much more of a budget? Because I think one of the strengths of the film, I mean, clearly, money is always welcome, but actually one of the strengths of the film is it has that sense of, of a small scale. You know, and this is a kind of, this is a tight story that's being told, and it's only, a, it's a couple of years, and you're often in, you're in studios, you're in apartments. I mean, would, where would the, money, the extra money have gone? Well, I could think of a lot of places. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, no, I, I think in reality, you know, extra money often means some of the other, we could have maybe gone for uh, bigger names than some of the other cast, which doesn't necessarily make the movie any better. And we could have maybe, ha I could have had more time, but ultimately I don't think I needed that much more time. Most of our days were nine or 10 hour days. I had a very quick DOP, so we didn't really need that much more time. I think because I decided to create a very narrow focus of the timeline and the scope, it, you know, but. I was writing this knowing that my budget would be somewhat contained, and so it all kind of comes together in a way. And I think, um, no, I felt, I felt very happy with the budget we had. I, yeah. I just realized how incredibly obnoxious that question sounded from a non-film. No, but I what think... What would you need the money for? No, I think, I think it is true, though. I, I don't, I do look, uh, some films I look back on and say, I really wish I would have had more money for certain things. The one thing, one of the things that I often find with independent films is that Producers tend to try to crunch you on crowds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, often with the number of extras and stuff, we, we tried to avoid that. But I, I certainly could have used ex a lot more extras at some of the thing, places like Birdland. There's certain things where you can create scope and size. And to be honest, those things don't even cost a ton. But ultimately, you, you're, you're always getting pushed in all kinds of ways. And you have to make certain compromises. And I think. Um, that, that would be maybe one of the regrets, is that we didn't have enough extras in certain areas. But that's so common for independent movies. It's the way it is. Let me ask you one last question, and it's a slightly ridiculous, invidious question. But from what you know of Chet, what would he have made of, of this film? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Sorry, um, I had to ask. Well, I think, because it's a jazz movie, I think jazz musicians have a mind, like this improvisational mindset that, that you can riff off of notes, you can riff off of facts. And I, I think 
you know, the hope is that him or other jazz musicians will kind of appreciate that aspect of it, this idea that we, we're not trying to make a documentary, we're trying to kind of capture the spirit of somebody. And I also think, you know, Ethan gives a very sympathetic portrayal of Chet Baker. Like, he was, he was a pretty nasty character. And this is as probably as sympathetic a version of Chet Baker as you're ever going to get. And Ethan really did it with so much love for Chet that I think it kind of comes through. I think Ethan, I think he was so right for this role because he's the kind of guy that can play, he's done it in other films, even like Boyhood, he can play a bit of a, a nasty rascal, but he's still kind of likable and sympathetic. And I think in that sense, um, Chet would have appreciated the fact that, that Ethan was doing it with love and sympathy and empathy for, for, for his character, I think. I think that's almost certainly true. We have run out of time, but please join me in thanking Robert Butrow. <laughs> <laughs>